Hi there. It's been a while. Uh, as I've mentioned in a couple Facebook posts, we unfortunately had some audio issues with this episode. So I'm just here to ask for your patience and accepting if there are glitches at times. Um, but I think that this is just a really amazing episode. We talk about a lot of really interesting parallels between the history and law of medieval times and what happens in this magnificent book and today. So I hope that you stick it out um, and thanks again for all your patience and encouragement. Um, I hope you like today's episode. Yeah, don't do that. Um, don't drug your friends. <laughs> not funny. Not cool. Doesn't matter if they have a big test coming up that they need to rest up for. Try natural remedies. Try talking to them about it. <laughs> natural um, remedies. I don't know. Like melatonin yeah. is over the counter. And you could say, hey, Kayla, try this melatonin, not slip yeah, into I know. her The way drink. that you just said it was like, melatonin's over the counter. You can put that <laughs> in someone's drink. No. Do not give people drugs without their consent. <laughs> very bad <laughs> all right now that we got now yes yeah. that that's cleared up <laughs> welcome to the dancing dove podcast where kayla and i discuss the legal and historical aspects of tamara pierce's tortal novels today we'll be discussing the second half of in the hands of the goddess Well, hi everybody. Welcome back. Um, we are so excited to be finishing In the Hands of the Goddess today, which is the second book in the Song of the Lioness series. Um, and before we get started, I think I just want to go through a quick summary of the plot um, for chapters six through 10. Um, and I'm just, I think gonna maybe go like chapter by chapter. So yeah, in chapter six, Alana, we find out has been kidnapped by the Toussaint army, I guess. <laughs> um, and we find out that they have been betrayed by Jem Tanner. As Kayla said last time, he is not a gem. Uh, All right, but you you did laugh at me when I made that joke, and uh, now you're using it. So, <laughs> as the one and only pun that I will allow. Um, <laughs> but uh, so Lana is captured, and unfortunately, the Tortalan king has prohibited um, his army from crossing the river to make any rescues, but Prince Jonathan, being the prince, can do whatever he wants, so he leads a group of men and they go rescue her before her big secret is revealed. Um, then they, the, they use, um, their captives, which is the two prince heirs of, um, Toussaint to negotiate a peace. And they get the entire valley back, which wasn't even what they had been hoping for. Um, and they all go home. And Alana returns to her sort of quiet 
squiredom <laughs> um, of going to parties and I guess like training, although we don't see much of that. Um, and in chapter seven, we see Alana um, start to get more interested in learning how to be a girl. So she learns how to dress as a lady at Courtwood, how to put on makeup, um, and her romantic relationships with both George and John um, sort of bloom. Um, but ultimately, she ends up in sort of a relationship with John. I think we'll talk more about that. Oh, yeah. Um, and then, you know, I think... We will expand upon this, but the book rounds out with Alana um, realizing that Roger has some sort of connection to all of these close uh, encounters with death that she has from um, when they're she's like staying out uh, camping and a wild boar almost kills her to they go hunting and a wolf almost kills her. Um, and then finally, she comes to the climax of, I think, you know, the whole story up until this point, which is the, the ordeal of knighthood. Um, and in her ordeal, she faces all of her greatest fears. Uh, the greatest of all is Duke Roger himself. And the chamber helps her see um, the sort of magical facade that Duke Roger has been putting on. Um, so after she is knighted, woohoo! Like, <laughs> this is the climax. This is what she's wanted the whole series. Um, she goes against all of the rules that she just swore to from the Code <laughs> of Chivalry to uh, out Roger as the true villain of this story. Um, they have a trial by combat, which Alana wins. And at the end of the book, she leaves. Chorus, the capital of Tortal, as, you know, maybe the most powerful knight in history, having defeated <laughs> Duke Roger, this great sorcerer, having survived her ordeal, and she's off to more adventures. I feel like you forgot a really important thing, which is that we get Tom! Oh, finally! Yeah, Tom comes back. <laughs> My guy Tom! T.H. Tom! I did forget about that little um, field trip that she takes with George. Well, yeah, well, so she takes a field trip with George to see her brother, which her brother turns out to be quite a character, and I can't <laughs> wait to talk about him. Yeah. And then he comes to court. And he, he does. Yeah, and he's the one who outs her, basically, as a girl. Well, in her duel with Duke Roger, Duke right. Roger, like, oh, I perfectly, forgot to say that part. Yeah, perfectly, like, cuts her shirt open, revealing her breasts. And yeah. everyone's like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. And then Tom, Tom, like, is like, huh, sis, why don't you get behind that cloth over there and I can let everyone know what's up. So this is my <laughs> sister. Her name is Alana. <laughs> it's great. I can't wait to talk about Tom. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, and what did I want to mention on that front? I mean, I guess uh, I think this is something for us to talk about in the feminism and gender section. Oh, yeah. But Alana has this whole period of time at the end of the book where she's like slowly coming out to each of her friends. Um, and of course, the final reveal when all of the... Um, 
courtiers at, you know, I don't know how to say, how do you say that word? That's probably right. <laughs> courtiers, court, court. courtiers. I don't know. That's you all keep the going. fancy I'll look it up. noble people at court find out that Alana has been masquerading as a man this whole time, and she's in fact a woman. And Tom brings her a shield which has the lioness rampant on it, which gives her her war name, the lioness. Um, and so this is like. The moment where Alana really comes into her own and owns who she is. And yeah, is off on adventures with Coram. Um, Finally, we missed Coram for the first yeah. half of this book. Yep. So, okay. Um, that's our summary. Now, I want to hear your first impressions. I think a lot happened in the second well, half. I feel like I always say that. A lot does happen. Yeah. We go through plot like real quick in this series. But I couldn't believe how risque it was that I heard Jonathan start <laughs> sleeping together. Yeah. Yeah. Which I obviously we've talked about this a lot before, but it's impossible in the time that I live in to not directly compare this to Harry Potter because Harry Potter is the book that the book series that I grew up on and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And they never talk about anyone having sex. <laughs> like, <laughs> So yeah. here we are just, you know, 300 pages ago in this story, Lana was nine and now she's sleeping with someone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. It's, it's, uh, it's great. I think we should talk more about that in the Great Mother's Temple. But, um, oh, for sure. I mean, we can't not talk about it. <laughs> like, I do think, like, <laughs> characters having sex in, like, YA fiction is not, um, it's not rare necessarily. No. I think what's interesting about this telling of this kind of story is that it happens so early on with the character. Uh, like, we still have two more books with her. Right. Um, whereas I feel like oftentimes, especially with the more like rom-com type novels, like who's that author, John Green? Green. Yeah. Um, like it's always like the end of the book or something or like the Sisterhood <laughs> of the Traveling Pants where it's like oh. the end of the book, one of the characters has sex, you know? Um, Spoiler alert for a sorry. book that came out. <laughs> <laughs> Looked like it's 20 like, years ago. Yeah, 20 years later. <laughs> I think that that ship has sailed. Um, but, yeah, and also I think I love the way that it's told that this is, like, they're learning from each other. They're helping each other sort of work through their fears and whatever. So, yeah, it's really beautiful. Um, what about all of the, like, let what? How do you feel about (laughs) her killing Duke Roger? Like, I feel like it's just so momentous and it happens so much sooner than you would think. I know. Which Alana herself sort of, she's like, oh my God, uh, what? (laughs) Well, I also think we didn't mention in the summary the voodoo doll situation, which this is not the first time that I felt like, wait a second, what? (laughs) It's going yes. on. Like, reminds me of how I felt during the Black City scene from the last book mm-hmm. when I was just like, wait, 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 wait. I thought that I understood 
where we were going in this book. And then I was just wrong. I was, she just pulled something out that I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, no, we're going with voodoo dolls. And yep. I mean, I'm glad to be rid of Duke Roger because I am tired of him. Yeah. And I think it's great that she finally did something about it. And yeah, I'm glad he's gone. Can't wait to see where we go next without him. <laughs> but also it is crazy. It's crazy that she was like, here's all this evidence I have. Here are literal dolls that yep. this is why the queen is dying. And mm -hmm. Duke Roger was like, I demand trial by combat. And the king was like, okay, trial by, <laughs> what? <laughs> oh yeah, we are definitely gonna talk yeah, about that. Like King Rald, like, don't you want to do, like, what if, what if he had won? And then, right. what, you're not gonna punish him? Yeah. So. Well, and I think that was, I mean, first of all, she had her first victory just by revealing the sort of weird voodoo doll thing. I know. Because yeah. that lifted the veil from all of the people who would have been more suspicious. Um, but also, as she said, it plants the seed of doubt. So no right. one will ever trust him again, you know? Um, yeah. Everyone's on their toes. So. Um, Just, it was crazy. It was yeah. cuckoo bananas. Totally crazy. Uh but I'm glad that I'm glad our secret is finally out also. Yeah. So that we can kind of I just I mean I it feels like we've wrapped up a lot of different parts of the story. Right. So it's really gonna be interesting to see where we go from here. Definitely. Definitely. Um okay, let's move on to our next segment, which is All right. fantasy land, in which we discuss the tropes that Tamara Pierce has either disrupted, turned on their heads, or has fallen into as a writer. So, um, where do you want to start in tropes? Well, I think that we should start with the chosen one trope, because obviously this is a trope that we are going to continue talking about because Alana is the chosen one. Yep. And it just, everything that happens, I'm always like, why is it always her? Like, yep. that line from uh, Harry Potter, but the movie, not the book where <laughs> McGonagall goes, why is it that when anything happens, it is always you three? Uh, great line. <laughs> and Ron goes, Professor, I've been asking myself that question for six years. <laughs> but that's basically what is happening with Alana. Like, yeah. she's the one who found out that, she's the one who noticed that Big Thor and Jem were not on guard anymore, which happens at the end of the last podcast episode that we did she's the one who gets captured she's the one who they wanted she's the one who has like the magical handcuffs and stuff like they knew right. she was coming mm -hmm. she's the one who takes down duke roger once and for all well and that so, actually i think leads into or is tied to another trope which is the like ultimate evil person mm -hmm. Um, who's like the ultimate villain that mm -hmm. you are just leading up to the entire story. And yeah. so sort of similar to Voldemort where Harry has like this one um, foil who the entire series is just about Harry like learning about Voldemort, figuring him out so that he can beat him. Yeah. Um, but I think in some ways Tamara Pierce um, or Tammy – Sort of uh, disrupts it a <laughs> little bit. To her friends. <laughs> to her friends. Um, in that, uh, 
she kills Duke Roger at the end of the second yeah. book. Mm-hmm. So we still have half of the series to go. And I find that ending part when Alana just feels so, like, overwhelmed that all of these things have manifested at the same time where, you know, she reveals that she is a woman and she kills Duke Roger and she gains her knighthood. Like, it all happens Mm -hmm. at once and she's so overwhelmed by it. And it reminded me a little bit of, like, in The Princess Bride when (laughs) Inigo Montoya finally kills the um, six-fingered man and he kind of doesn't know what to do after that. Um, And I feel like that is a common trope that I see throughout fantasy where people have like this one mission that they're pursuing for 10 years or, you know, a long, long time. And then when they finally complete it, they're like, oh my God, what do I do with myself? Yeah. Or like Frodo who can't really live once his mission is over. That's different though. That's because Frodo has gone through (laughs) so much trauma that like... He literally can't stay in Middle-earth. I was actually just reading um, one of the letters, one of Tolkien's letters on this, because I don't remember. I was chatting about it with a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you don't need a reason to just be reading Tolkien's letters. Yeah, of course. (laughs) That's just a normal, everyday habit. Um, But he talks about how Frodo's guilt of sort of giving in at that last moment... um, is eating away at him. Mm. And it's one of the reasons why he has to leave. I haven't thought about that. Middle before. Earth, yeah, and go to Valinor is to be healed from that um, sort of shame and guilt. Although Tolkien himself says uh, Frodo didn't really fail, you know? Like, oh. failure is when, or fail a failure of morality is when you still have the option to choose the right path and you don't. Whereas Frodo gave everything he had, you know, until the point where he was just completely out of anything to give. Um, And so in that way, it was a success and he did everything he could. And then fate intervened um, to, you know, push the ring to that through the last step. Um, But here, Alana hasn't given everything, right? She she's still got a lot to go. Um, Yeah. And I'm uh, just just a side note, one of our uh, loyal listeners continues to say that this is really just a cover podcast to uh, start Sam's Lord of the Rings podcast <laughs> that she wants. <laughs> so I can only no. uh, imagine her reaction when she hears how long we've been talking about Frodo just now. <laughs> <laughs> one day, many years in the future, when this podcast is finished, perhaps we will... Switch to Lord of the Rings. Yeah. In like five years. Yeah. Um, Honestly, I I should just give a shout out to the Prancing Pony podcast, which is in part the inspiration for our podcast name. They are an incredible podcast. And I really feel like they they did it all. I don't know if there's anything to add there. Um, Yeah, that would really just be for us to have fun and just talk about the books. Yeah. (laughs) We can just read this. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We don't have to make a podcast. You're right. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Other tropes that we were talking about. Right. So this isn't, well, 
Yeah, I don't think I have any other tropes. I feel like a lot happens in this book that is unexpected. Yeah. Um, and so the, it really all fits in the other segments. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's move on then to our next segment, which is in Sir Miles's study, where we talk about historical facts or different things that might have happened in history through the chapters that we've been discussing. So there are a few things that I wanted to talk about, mostly around the ordeal of knighthood. So I wanted to talk about when knights would be knighted, <laughs> when squires would be knighted. So usually they would be knighted by the local lord based on exceptional bravery on the battlefield or when they turned a certain age, kind of like what we saw, what we see Alana does. There were right. also times when someone would get knighted before a battle because the leader would be like, you know what, I bet you're going to be so brave in this battle, so I'm just going to knight you like before the battle even starts. Wow. And they'd be like, cool, woo. But I think really it was because then like a knight would have more leadership abilities on the battlefield. Like they hmm. would be able to say like, okay, we're going to do this or that or whatever. Right. Um, sort of like... And commander position exactly or some of them would be knighted like right after the battle if they were really really brave and there were even times when someone could pay to become a knight which i think is wow just a clear example of that must some, be how roger did it <laughs> yeah, some corruption just uh i got money in a when the crown needs money, they can just go around knighting people. Um, knights can also be knighted by other knights, like we saw in Game of Thrones <laughs> season mm -hmm. eight. Um, but most knights went through a training on a smaller scale than what we saw Lana and her friends go through, starting out as a page and moving up the ranks. The training they received is similar. Basically, they needed to be able to ride horses and use swords, and they also needed to be able to appreciate art so they needed to be able to recite poetry play hmm. games and be aware of all of the manners and culture at court as well they were often and i by often i mean almost always knights were the sons of knights we've talked a lot about this but oh. at the time there was very little possibility for upward mo mobility so most knights were actually the sons of knights. And when they were born, it was already decided that they were going to grow up to be a knight. Okay. And Got a it. large reason for that was because being a knight was very expensive. Not only were, was the armor really expensive, but the initiation was actually very expensive as well. Hmm. Uh, one other funny thing is that some squires did fail to become knights or they didn't have enough money to go through the initiation and have a ceremony. So they just stayed as a squire for their whole lives. Oh. Or some of them went into the priesthood or like into religion. Um, and there's a famous example that I read about, which was Geoffrey Chaucer from the, the author of the Canterbury Tales was a yeah. squire and he never became a knight. Oh, <laughs> but we remember him more than I would say most nights. So very true. So I wow. think that he, I think he wins. Yeah, he wins for sure. Hey, yes. nothing wrong with being a squire. No, you know, um, we're gonna read a book in like seven months. 
<laughs> called Squire. And Woo. being a squire sounds great from that experience. I mean, squires did have to, like, wait on their knights yeah. and foot. But, you know, being a knight's probably not for everyone. Yeah. I wouldn't be a good knight, personally. I definitely would not be a good knight. I am not yeah. brave enough. No. <laughs> it's Hufflepuff. snowing outside and I'm afraid to go outside. <laughs> true although hey alana was afraid of the cold too so she overcame it that should be you uh probably not (laughs) (laughs) so the next thing i wanted to talk about was the ceremony itself so a lot of things in the ceremony in the book were actually pretty accurate Uh, i will also Mm -hmm. say a caveat is that the ceremony changed over time So I'm going to use pretty much like the earliest forms of the knighting ceremony because those were usually the most elaborate, which Mm. I think is just kind of fun to talk about. Of course. Uh, (laughs) Being knighted was also known as dubbing. And the ceremony Ah. started the day before. So there was a bath, a ceremonial bath like Alana had. Usually it was symbolizing baptism which is in Christianity, Mm. you get baptized in water to purify yourself. Um, And that was kind of the idea of the bath the day before. I did read that there were some times when they were bathed by other people, but I think usually the squire just took a bath by himself. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it was very often that there were other people who were like, I'm bathing you. So I do think that Tammy used that as a way to be like, well, she has to tell people because they can't see her naked in the bath. Yeah, about her being a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the squire would stand vigil in the chapel overnight, similarly to the way that Alana did. However, usually they were praying. And I got to be honest, I didn't hear any prayer coming from Alana overnight. (laughs) She was mostly like, which boy do I like? (laughs) No, just kidding. She had lots of stuff going on in her brain, but... It's more Um, of a meditation mm -hmm. than a prayer. Yes. So usually it would be, you would put like your sword on the altar and you would pray and thank the Lord for getting you this far and ask him for guidance. Um, I mean, knighthood in general was really a lot more religious than Mm -hmm. it is portrayed in this book because obviously this is a different religious system than Christianity. Uh, I mean, so much of kingdoms and wars and kings was about Christianity in the past. I mean, not that it's not now, but whatever, we can get to that later. (laughs) Um, So then the day of the ceremony, the squire would dress and usually they would wear a white tunic and a white belt to symbolize their purity. They would wear black or brown stockings to represent the earth to which they came, from which Mm. they came and from which they would return. And a scarlet cloak to symbolize all of the blood that the knight will spill in his oh, knighthood. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> the the blood that they will spill for the Lord is usually what it what it said. So interesting. Yeah. Um, the ceremony was in different locations, often outside in a chapel or in the royal palace if you were an important noble son, nobleman, noble nobleman. <laughs> and um, then the squire would also get Gilded spurs, which was calling to win one's spurs, which is a phrase used to talk about becoming a knight. Mm. And then the squire would kneel down in front of whoever was knighting them, and they would do the actual thing that we see in movies and TV shows with the sword, where they would go, like, on their 
So they get shoulders. dumped and there's no there's no like test beforehand. No. Okay, so the whole ordeal is just the whole like praying in the chapel or wherever you right. are. Got it. Do you hear that? Yes. Is that Pearl? Sorry, no. That is I don't know. <laughs> I'm something kidding. something happening in my apartment. Uh someone wants to uh be a part of uh, maybe that's that's my dubbing. Someone's knighting me. <laughs> um but yeah, so then Oh, sometimes, I did think that this was funny. Sometimes they would, instead of just, like, tapping the sword, they would actually, like, take the sword and, like, hit them with the sword. Because, and it represented the last blow that they would be dealt that they would not retaliate. Because then after that, they would have to retaliate because they were a knight. Yeah. Interesting. And that was, like, pretty much it. Then they would get up and they would be a knight. There were words that were said, but it was very, very different varied very differently like it wasn't like you have to say these words um although sometimes whoever was knighting the person would then give the knight a kiss on the cheek which i thought was cute and (laughs) then there would be a huge feast so that's the other thing a lot of people wanted to be knighted on the battlefield because then they wouldn't have to pay for the huge feast and the ceremony because the knight's family is the one who had to pay for the ceremony themselves and obviously, the more noble... That uh, sounds like a bar mitzvah. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> Although, is there a way to get bar mitzvah on the battlefield? <laughs> well, you could do... I mean, I have friends who had, like, evening services, and then they would just do the party and the service in the same location, which I guess maybe could be cheaper. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, I do feel like there are similarities. It's like coming of age kind of ceremony thing. You have to like prove that you've properly received your training in how to read the Torah. Um, And then you have a big party that your parents are like, wow, I have to pay for a bunch of (laughs) 13-year-olds to have a good time. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much much what happens at the end. A terrible DJ. Themed socks. <laughs> Who does not take requests? <laughs> Did you have themed socks? No, I didn't. But um, <laughs> but it's one of those things that like I feel like everybody had them, and then I was like, I'm gonna be different. What did you give out? So I can't remember what our party favors were, but my like party theme was around the world, and so each table was a different country, and everybody got a passport, and then you had to like wow. go around to each table and get it stamped from each country. Um, so I was That's a fun. nerd even at thirteen. Yeah. If you were wondering. <laughs> Other people did not have themes; it was just a party. And they, I mean, it wasn't just themed socks. I remember getting like sweatpants from one. Yeah. No, I remember like they would give out like a shirt or a sweatshirt or something and then everyone would wear them to school the next day. So you could see. Yeah, be like, I went to the party. (laughs) And I I was not invited to that many. I was uh, (laughs) not as cool as I am now. Well, what? I was. I just didn't know. Like, I wasn't I wasn't owning it yet. Got so it. there were just a lot of times when I would be like, Mom, I can't go to school tomorrow. And she's like, why? And I'm like, well, because I didn't get to wear the cool sweatshirt and everyone's going to know. But uh, she didn't let me stay home for that. Yeah. My mom was pretty much always like, if you're not throwing up or there isn't blood coming out of your eyes, you're going to school. Wow. 
Yeah, she would literally say that to me. <laughs> Does blood often come out of your Pretty eyes, gross. Samantha? No, it never did. It never did. So I always had to go to school. Uh, but yeah, I think that those are pretty much the historical facts that I wanted to talk about. Um, Great. The voodoo dolls is the other thing, which voodoo was not very popular in uh, in England. So it was interesting to kind of mix that with what's generally an English historical telling of knighthood hmm. with voodoo dolls, which were much more common in the Caribbean countries, like Haitian, Haiti. <laughs> Do I start that again? <laughs> Steve. <laughs> you know what I was thinking? We should fire Steve and get a woman. What do you think? <laughs> um, I did think about that, but then I was like, I kind of like the idea that we just have a male servant, you know, like we're oh, yeah. the boss. Uh huh. You know, it's like 100% female run like yeah. owned podcast and then mm-hmm. we just have a male employee that does okay. all her bitch work yeah that's fine <laughs> all right so steve roll it back <laughs> but in haiti hey steve and... can be a woman too yeah, i kind of like the name steve for a woman it's cute yeah stevie St- oh stevie like stevie yeah. bud but i, I think great. i think this steve is like a is like a nerdy tech guy and he yeah. does everything we tell him including getting our coffee yeah um <laughs> But, and then voodoo also is very popular in Louisiana. It moved there with a lot of, hmm, don't remember what word I was going to say. Steve? Stevie? (laughs) Um, But yeah, and then there is another part historically that I want to talk about, but it's trial by combat. And I think that that's a good place to move into our next segment. Absolutely. So the next segment is in Clerk Hayward's office in which I discuss the legal references and fun facts uh, relevant to Tammy's works. So the first thing I want to talk about is um, sort of skipping ahead to the end of the book when Alana presents her evidence about Duke Roger. Um, The process there is, as we discussed earlier, um, pretty weird. <laughs> uh, I think it hadn't really been established prior to this moment um, how one goes about accusing a noble of a crime. Um, but the law in Tortal is something that we'll see flushed out further in later books, um, like the legal system, especially when it comes to the legal rights and responsibilities of nobles. But here we discover that, I guess, nobles or maybe it's royals, people from the royal family, have a right to trial by combat when accused of, you know, a high crime. Um, And as Kayla said, it's pretty (laughs) strange and, like, illogical to be like, oh, we have all this evidence about you plotting to steal the throne and kill the queen and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And instead of having a trial where we prevent that, present that evidence and have an adjudicator and, um, you know, go through like logically, you know, trying to find the truth, it's just you two are going to fight it out. <laughs> and whoever wins is the one who is right. Um, a 
modern reference to the trial by combat. Um, well, first of all, we see this in other fantasy yes. stories. Um, probably the most recent one in like the popular mind is Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. um, where Tyrion has trial by combat and... Um, Oh, but also, God. he has someone else do it for him. Right, yeah. Which is interesting. That is interesting. And you do sort of wonder, like, could Alana have tapped out and said, hey, someone else fight for me? Given she would never that, do that. She no, would she never would, do that. Of course never do that. But, you know, she's but going she? into this right. at a disadvantage because she had just gone through the ordeal. Her fingers were all uh, messed up. So could you Could you say that the duels that were popular in colonial America were kind of similar to trial by combat? I definitely think so. Yeah, there are definitely parallels there. Um, Of course, that immediately brings to mind Hamilton, which means Kayla is going to (laughs) again put it in my face that she's seen Hamilton three times and I've never seen it. Um, Uh, We we watched it together on Disney+. Plus. Okay, that's not the same. (laughs) It's not the same. Like, I will say, I love Rent the movie. It's incredible. But it's not the same as seeing Rent in person. Um, same goes for Hamilton. Anyway, uh, so we have this reference from Game of Thrones, which reminded me of the most modern or the most recent reference we get to Trial by Combat, sadly, <clears throat> is by an alumnus of my law school, NYU Law, Rudy Giuliani, Um, former President Trump's personal lawyer, um, who a couple of months ago in a, at a rally said to a big crowd, um, that, you know, in talking about how falsely he believed the election was stolen, um, he said people should use trial by combat as a method to, um, figure out who is right in the election, which is just, like, really out of left field. Um, and I saw recently that, of course, this is one of the pieces of evidence, speaking of evidence and trials, um, that the House managers referenced in making their case about the January 6th insurrection, um, And in response to that, Giuliani said that he wasn't trying to inspire violence, but rather was making a reference to Game of Thrones. Um, Now, I don't know how that clears anything up. (laughs) He said that? Yes, he said that. Um, So, yeah, I really don't know what that has to do with anything. Um, And I don't want to dwell on Giuliani that long, but I just thought we had to reference it given that um, Trial by Combat has come back into the popular uh, sort of real politique of our day. I would love for George R.R. Martin to respond to that. Yeah, seriously. Um, hey, George R.R. Martin went to the same college as me and Kayla. And I'll, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Look at us, just talking about people who went to our school. So many connections. (laughs) Um, Okay, so wanted to mention that. Now, backing up in in this section a bit um, to when Jonathan goes and rescues Alana with um, a group of both nobles who are her friends um, from Chorus and all of the new friends that she has made amongst the soldiers. Um, 
So Jonathan goes and rescues her with this party, despite the king's order that no one crossed the river to make rescue attempts. And this was uh, an order that was given upon pain of death. Um, but as Miles shrewdly points out to Duke Roger, the king could hardly k- kill his only son and heir, as Kayla has discussed on prior episodes. Um, you know, it's having only one heir is a pretty risky situation to be in. So um, Jonathan sort of uses his status to protect their mission. Um, and the king does pardon Jonathan and all of his friends. So I thought it was an interesting reference to pardons. Um, Again, our legal system is inherited from the English legal system um, and things like the pardon power are powers that had been vested in the king and have been transferred to, in our system, the president of the United States. Um, Now, the president can only give pardons for federal crimes, um, whereas for state crimes, you would have to seek a pardon from the governor of the state. Um, Now, I would have to say, since I have shouted out Rachel Barco before, she would be upset if I didn't mention that um, the pardon power is just very sadly underused. Um, And we recently saw, I think, one of the first federal executions in a really long time because Mm -hmm. Trump refused to pardon um, really, like the vast majority of um, what had been who the people who had been designated as deserving of pardons, mm-hmm. um, and then in the last few weeks of his presidency, issued pardons to a bunch of his cronies. Um, there was reporting that people were trying to buy pardons, um, and legally, if you were wondering, there's actually nothing illegal about that. Um, huh. Yeah, the the pardon power is a plenary power vested in the president, and he can um, he can make use of that power in any way that he wants, pretty much. Um, now, could it be, could it qualify as a high crime and misdemeanor that would be impeachable? I would say definitely yes. Um, I mean, that seems to be the kind of corruption that the founders would want to address through impeachment um, or some legal avenue. But obviously, given what we've just seen, um, I don't think Trump is going to face any other impeachment charges um, unless he becomes president again and does any of this again. Um, (laughs) So that's on pardons. Um, I also wanted to mention, you know, we talked a little bit about how Roger has this veil over these like sort of voodoo dolls and, or what, you know, I forget what they call them in the book, um, but just like wax figures. And so all of these high level people who are really smart, um, like Miles and Ilana herself are shrouded in sort of uncertainty when it comes to Duke Roger. Um, So Alana has a conversation with Miles where she almost accuses Roger just in the privacy of that room Mm -hmm. between the two of them. Um, And Miles stops her and says, the enemy you will make is too powerful for you to accuse without evidence and plenty of it. And that sort of sets the stage for what Alana's task is and how she has to go about... um, uh, 
addressing all of these problems with Duke Roger. But uh, this is also sort of a reference, I would say, to the concept of libel and defamation. Um, and I just wanted to mention, because I took civil procedure with the great Arthur Miller, not the playwright. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember when I said that for the first time and you were like, I don't know what you're talking about? <laughs> I don't remember that conversation, <laughs> but... I was like, yeah, The Crucible. Yeah. And you were like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I remember, didn't Arthur Miller write Death of a Salesman? Um, hold on. Steve? Yeah, 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 he did. Okay, he did. see, that's what I remember, that's what I think of when I think Arthur he Miller. He wrote both. But... And he also was, like, married to Marilyn Monroe. Oh, yeah, I always forget about that. What a weird yeah. match, but... Okay, yeah. cool. Um, well, my Arthur Miller, <laughs> Arthur R. Miller. Not married. Or as. Has not been married to Marilyn has Monroe. Has not been married to Marilyn Monroe. Um, they did, however, go to the same high school within a few years of each other. Isn't that crazy? Wait, sorry. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe? No. Or... <laughs> no, the two the Arthur, Arthur Millers. Miller. Yes. Um, so wow. my professor, Arthur Miller, his middle name is R. So we call him Arm, A-R-M, his initials. <laughs> Funny. Um, interesting. He is quite a character. Um, some of our older listeners might know him because he was on TV a lot um, at the height of his career. I think he had a TV show. But he has argued in like every circuit court. He's argued before the Supreme Court many times. Um, he is very entertaining. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention that in his class we talked about um, – how defamation suits are, you know, I don't know how common it is to bring that kind of suit, but it's very difficult to succeed with a defamation suit, um, particularly in states like New York, where the procedural rules have been designed to um, prevent defamation. And that is why, uh, or perhaps those laws are designed to protect a lot of the um, like media companies that are based in New York. So defamation, not quite as uh, <laughs> strong a legal case as you might have thought. Huh. Um, yeah, it's much, much more difficult to bring those suits than, than I had previously believed before coming to law school. Did you know that your Arthur Miller is also known for his collection of woodblock prints? I did know that, Kayla. We we <laughs> learned a lot about this man last year. Um, he also collects, I don't know, he has a lot of collections. I think he has a collection of pens. Well, that's not listed on his Wikipedia page, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the woodblock prints were, um, like, his most valuable collection and were presented. Like, there was an exhibit of them at a museum or something. It's pretty yeah. fun. Um, he's an interesting guy. Uh, Arthur R. Miller. He's written like every civil procedure thing ever. His name's on all of it. Um, I can say that after having interned for a judge last summer. And every time I had to cite something for civil procedure, I was citing to him. So <laughs> it was, yeah, interesting. Um, okay. So the last thing I wanted to mention in Clerk Hayward's office is the incident where George and Alana are hanging out the day before her ordeal and he offers her a drink. Um, and there are two things I wanted to mention about this. So first of all, she accuses him as always of stealing it because he does 
mostly steal everything. That's sort of his life's work. Um, and he says, no, there's a tax stamp on it. Uh, vintages like this are better than gold and better watched. So with regards to taxes, um, taxes have been around for a very long time. Um, according to Wikipedia, the first known taxation took place in ancient Egypt around 3000 BC. Um, and they sort of make sense. You know, it's, I think, uh, uh, critical element of any centralized government is you have to have revenue from some source. Um, and so taxation is in some ways sort of, you know, if you think about the social contract, it's part of what you give to government and then government gives back things to you. Um, but I wanted to mention, I think, I have seen in popular culture a lot people who say that tax, uh, income tax is unconstitutional. Um, and there was actually a case that we studied in criminal law last spring called Cheek v. U.S. from 1991 when a, um, I believe he was an airplane, I want to say, yes, an airlines pilot, um, the plaintiff cheek who uh, did not pay his taxes. And the reason is because he said that tax laws were unconstitutional. Um, and the reason we studied this case is because we were looking at, you know, do you have to know about a law? Do you have to know that something is illegal in order to be found guilty? So it turns out that, uh, in criminal law, you do not necessarily need to know that what you're doing is a crime in order to be found guilty, um, unless the statute makes knowledge of the law an element of the offense. So, for example, if the statute says, when someone knowingly does this or willfully does this, then a, a requirement of finding someone guilty would be that they knew that it was a crime. Um, but typically, that is not the case. And again, this goes back to what we've talked about um, with criminal law serving as a way to send a message to the community that something is wrong. Um, and I think there are also arguments of like incentivizing people to know what the law is and so on and so forth. Um, but coming back to Cheek v. U.S., the bottom line takeaway for everybody is taxation is not unconstitutional, okay? Go read the case. There are articles about it, um, but it is not unconstitutional, and I would like everybody to know that and be aware of that. Um, now, the other thing that happens uh, in this scene or that's uh, invoked is, yeah, Oh, crap. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, Steve's really got his work cut out yes, for him today. Seriously. Oh, man. Lots of uh, lots of editing to do. So, um, sorry, where did I leave off? <laughs> oh, oh, the other thing I wanted to mention is um, what uh, when George gives Alana this drink and mm -hmm. it is drugged, um, that is very much illegal. I don't know if the drug itself would be illegal, but certainly giving it to someone against their will or without consent is not okay. So for our readers and listeners out there who were thinking of doing yeah, this, please 
Again, <laughs> do not follow George's lead, okay? We've already no. established he lives on the other side of the law. Um, this is not cool. Um, but I think that, um, again, you know, f- Faithful comes in here at this moment where I think we would otherwise, like, be kind of horrified um, by George's <laughs> action. At least we know that um, Faithful is there protecting Alana, mm-hmm. and if there was anything nefarious in there that would be harmful to her um he'd be there to protect her so that's like a little safeguard yeah that that she has um but uh so yeah don't do that um don't drug your friends (laughs) not funny not cool doesn't matter if they have a big test coming up that they need to rest up for try natural remedies Try talking to them about it. <laughs> Natural um, remedies. I don't know. Like melatonin yeah. is over the counter. And you could say, hey, Kayla, try this melatonin, not slipping. Yeah, I know. Her the drink. way that you just said it was like melatonin's over the counter. You can put that <laughs> in someone's drink. No. Do not give people drugs without their consent. <laughs> Very bad. All right, now that we got yeah (laughs) that's cleared up (laughs) um okay so that is it for me from clark hayward's office uh let's move on to the great mother's temple in which we talk about feminism and gender so i don't even know where where to to start start. i know (laughs) okay well i think that something that is really cool to think about is the part when Alana decides that she also wants to be feminine. And Mm -hmm. I think that it's really a cool lesson for young women to learn, young young men, everyone, to learn that it's okay if you want to be masculine and be a fighter and be a knight, and you also want to be feminine at the same time. And I think a lot of times our society kind of forces us to pick one, right? Like even... Even someone who is not heteronormative, right? If you are queer, if you are gay, if you're bisexual, if you're a lesbian, society also continues to kind of say like, oh, well, if you're a lesbian, you have to have masculine features. Right. And traits. And if you're gay, you have to have feminine features and traits. Yeah. Or within the queer community, Mm -hmm. um, there are pressures to choose a particular type. Mm -hmm. Um, like, oh, are you a more feminine right. gay? Are you a more masculine? Right. Or, um, you know, Wh- which like one of you is the man? Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Which is awful that society does this. And yep. I think it's a really cool message to kind of say you can do both. You can mm-hmm. be masculine and feminine. You can go back and forth. Yep. Especially for when this was written. And the fact that it kind of still is an important lesson for young people to learn today is really cool. Definitely. Yeah. And I particularly love the fact that it's um, in this moment sort of manifested with clothing. Um, like she has the clothes that she wears right. as a knight slash squire. Um, and then she has the clothes that she wears when she wants to, you know, right. feel girly. And, and I love that moment on her birthday when she's like, Hey, there's no rule yeah. that says I have to be a man <laughs> yeah. on my birthday. I'm gonna wear a dress. It's and my birthday. I can be a man. If I, I can be a girl if I want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So okay, let's talk about the budding romance. Yeah. 
with Jonathan. What did you think? Well, I mean, it's hard because they don't put any parameters on their relationship. And I feel like they're both pretty confused, even though they both are like saying that they're in love with each other. Like the, the, the part when Jonathan tells her that he loves her and then she's like, okay, I think he's sleeping. I can tell him that I love him too. And oh. then Jonathan's like, I heard you. I knew that you loved me. I just needed you to, I needed you to know also. Um, yeah. But it's a very, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because they're also best friends. And right. it's hard. And also, you know, Alana's Jonathan Squire. Like there's just a lot of relationships mm-hmm. playing out in between this bigger relationship that's now happening. And it does make me a little nervous for my friend Alana and what's going to happen to her heart. Yeah, well, and she even, like, thinks about it, and we see this from the beginning of their relationship, that she's like, you have to marry for the good Mm -hmm. of the kingdom. Yeah. Um, And so she really doesn't want to talk about their future Mm -hmm. or getting serious. Um, And I think she is sort of protecting her heart still, you know? Yeah. Which is... Or what we talked about last time. When they first start getting together, then she's like, this was this is a really happy time in my life, but I know that it's not going to last. Yeah. Which. Um, yeah. I think many of us have had experiences where <laughs> we're like, oh, this is great right now, but I, right. I know that there is some sort of challenge upcoming. Um, and, yeah, I think sometimes it is the right thing to do to just say, I'm just going to enjoy it right. in the moment. Yeah. Um, and I love that that is uh, sort of endorsed by the author here, mm-hmm. you know? Like, again, I think often in fantasy, especially right. with the female-led fantasy that we've seen in the last couple of decades, there is this idea of, like, this person's perfect for you, and you have to fight to, like, make sure that nothing gets in the way. And here, instead, it's sort of like, all right, there might be challenges down the road. This might not last, but I love you now. Right. And and I'm excited to enjoy our time together now. Yeah, I do like the kind of subversion of the trope of soulmate or there's only one person yep. for you. Yeah, exactly. I hope that um, I, I hope that one day we get to kind of explore George as a love interest more than just what's happened so far because I mean, George is a really interesting guy. <laughs> <laughs> No one can see it, but uh, Sam just left the <laughs> my field of vision because she doesn't want to give anything away. <laughs> Trying not to have anything show on my face. Okay. Um, oh, the other thing I wanted to talk about is this process of Alana mm-hmm. sort of coming out to her friends and to the community. Um, because it, it does, like... Again, this is something I didn't think about right. as a kid, but reading it now, I'm like, wow, this yeah. it has such huge parallels to what it looks like to come mm-hmm. out as queer today. Right. Um, and I have a, a very good friend of mine who came out as gay in high school, um, and I remember we would chat about how unfair it is and how annoying it is that if you're not cis straight, you have coming out is not like a one-time mm-hmm. event. Um, and this is something that, you know, I think like in his perspective or what from what I remember of our conversation, he was like, I kind of thought I would just tell people and then it would be over. Mm-hmm. 
but I, it's like a continuous thing for the rest of my life. I have to yeah. constantly be coming out and it's um, exhausting uh, and uh, can be really frightening in a lot of situations. Um, and this really reminded me of that where she had to come out to Gary and, you know, she's already sort of come out to John and George. Um, and then there's like the quote right. unquote big reveal, um, which, which is an accident. Um, yeah. But then you have at the end of the book, when she's about to leave, Raul says, um, I really feel I don't yeah. know this sir, Alana, um, which I just love Raul so much. Um, he's such a cutie. <laughs> um, but I love that too, that he's like, Hey, there's this whole part of you that I didn't know. And I want you to stay and I want to get to know right. you better, you know? And she's like, uh, peace. Yeah. I'm leaving. <laughs> I also, that does remind me of the part when, I forget exactly when it is, but Jonathan says to Sir Miles, like, you know, she has a secret. And Sir Miles is like, don't tell mm. me. Like, I think I know what it is, but I'm going to wait for her to be the one to tell me. Because, yeah. I mean, Ugh. and that does have huge parallels to coming out because it's like, it's an individual process and a personal process. So yeah. you can't. So Miles is like, it's not it's not your place to tell me. It's, it's Alana's. Totally. Alan. Totally. Yeah. Yep. Um, and something we didn't talk about um, with the Black City scene where uh, the Isandir reveal Alana to be mm -hmm. a woman to Jonathan by removing her clothes. Um, there is just this absolutely terrible, terrible um, sort of, I don't know what to call it, concept, trope, whatever, of, like, revealing trans people by removing their clothes mm -hmm. or something along those lines. Um, and so I did want to mention that I do I do see the sort of analog there, and I think that can be incredibly traumatic for someone um, to read. And so I want to recognize that, that it could be, like, a, a scary thing to read. Um and it does kind of suck that that's the way people find out, you know? Like, do you have to reveal? I mean, it's just so, such a, like, personal attack um, to have your body revealed when you don't want it to be. Um, and, yeah, incredibly traumatic. And I'm sure something that will stay with her for the rest of her life, not to mention that she now has this scar. Because it wasn't just that he cut through the shirt. He literally cut her through her skin from collarbone to, I don't know, I guess stomach yeah. or somewhere around that area. And so, um, yeah, that's just like a horrible experience to have, um, to have to go through. And it's just not in any way how, I mean, coming out to people is an incredibly personal process. You should never be forced into it, whether it's through like this weird physical thing or by someone else um outing you yeah so yeah did you ever think, uh did you ever see love simon no i heard it was good yeah i mean one of the central features of the story it, it was a, a ya book first was mm -hmm. is that he is outed by someone that he thought was a friend and so Ugh. everyone in his school finds out that he is gay and it's it's honestly, it's a great scene because it's so emotional, but it's so awful. Yeah. And you know, That's you know how PG thirteen movies can use one f bomb. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's 
that happened. And I had brought my kids to see it, like my seventh graders to see the movie. Right. <laughs> right when he, uh, when the main character finds out that he's been outed and he's talking to the guy who outed him, he like says like, stay the F away from me. And one of my kids goes, damn, in the movie theater. <laughs> and it was just so fun. It was like one of those moments where the whole movie theater is silent except my one kid who yelled, damn, and then everyone cracked up. It was it was great. But my central thesis there was that it was awful to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible um, betray- betrayal of friendship, I think. Um, but I will say on a positive note, I do like that it's represented in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, for sure. And, you know, that that folks have the chance to read about it with these fictional characters and think through those issues on their own. Um, And so for people who wouldn't personally go through this experience, maybe they can have a better, you know, sort of empathy for folks um, and understand why this is such a horrible thing to do to someone. Um, Did you want to talk about Delia again? Well, I just, it was really sad to me when I found out that she was actually on Duke Rogers' side because the more I had thought about it, the more I was like, I do like this representation of a woman who can go after what she wants and uses what she has. And then we find out that actually she was working on Duke Rogers' orders, which also like, we never really find out why or like what he was going to give her. And yeah, that's a good point. That, that was sad for me that I had I had fought for her in the last episode and then boom. I know. Yeah, it is sad. Um, I wish that we had more representation of the other women at court yeah. to get a sense of like, was Delia just this um, sort of outlier uh, where everyone knew she was... Um, sort of plotting and trying to manipulate relationships. And there were plenty of women who um, were using their sort of like political savvy Mm -hmm. to do things other than treason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But don't worry. We have a lot more, a lot more like amazing female characters to come. I know I've said that a couple of times, but I promise they're coming. Well, now she's, you know, she's not at court anymore with all the knights, so... We'll see what happens. Right. Yeah, going somewhere else. Um, all right, are we ready to move on to our next I segment? I think we are. All right, our next seg- segment is where we talk about what parts of the story would be great in a live-action adaptation and which ones would be really hard. So we're moving on to adapt or not. Uh, when you were talking about the part with the, with the duel and how... Mm-hmm she is outed there, that would be a hard scene, I think, to get right. Because, I mean, I don't know if they would do it the exact same way, but I think Mm. that depending on where we, uh, what what station picks this up, like if it's HBO, then maybe, but you know, like um, there can't be that much nudity on all channels of TV. So I think that that would be really interesting. And it could be really powerful, mm-hmm. but it also could be done not as effectively. Yeah. This actually, sorry, I, I want to go back and just mention something I forgot oh, yeah. I wanted to say, which is that um, I think it's so interesting when Alana is revealed to be a woman to the whole court. Um, 
Duke Roger, like, becomes really angry and, like, more sort of crazed than yeah. he was before. Um, and she says to herself, like, okay, this guy is trying to kill the queen. He's trying to kill Jonathan. He's trying to kill me. He's trying to steal the throne. And he is acting like the Mm -hmm. wronged one because of this innocuous secret that has absolutely nothing to do with him. Um, And that just, like, made me think of how young people can be, or, like, everyone can be gaslit into thinking that something that they did is wrong. And for so much of her life, Alana had felt really guilty about keeping this secret from everyone in her life. And then she finds as she's, you know, coming out to her friends that they're all pretty much okay with it. They're like, cool, like, Gary thinks it's going to be funny when people realize. That part is good. Um, Miles is, like, totally accepting of it and um, even maybe realizes ahead of time. Roger is the Mm -hmm. only one who's like, wow, this makes you a terrible person. And in some ways, I feel like it's because he's finally found something to latch onto to be like, Alan's not the perfect squire that we thought he was or, you know, something like that. Um, But I agree, it would be difficult to adapt. And maybe that's the kind of thing where uh, you don't actually see it happen, but you hear people Mm -hmm. talk about it or something like that. But it is such a climactic moment um, because... But on the other hand, I don't know. I mean, I think Alana's reflection on the fight is almost more interesting than the fight itself. Yeah. Um, because she's so confused about it and feels like, oh, my God, I just killed this guy. And what do I do now? Yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe that would be a way to do it is you don't show it. You just see, like see her talking to someone about it, like Miles, maybe. One day we should do like potential castings that would be fun yes yes we do that i see that a lot in the facebook group oh yeah um and i think for me the like number one thing that i've been thinking is i just want everyone to be unknown you know i don't know that i can handle like uh i saw someone recently say emma stone as alana and i was like i can't handle someone that i know too old also now yeah Right, right. I mean, all of them are always too old. Because by the time they grow to love an actor, it's like, yeah, they can't do this. <laughs> Unless it's like the king or, you know. Right. Maybe do Roger. Roger. Yeah, that's who I was thinking, yeah. like, who could play Roger? Because he's, I like, think, so handsome. Okay, we're getting into it now. James Marsden would oh. be a great Roger, don't you think? I love James Marsden. And I read this article recently about how he always has to remake himself and everyone doesn't, like love him enough as he should because he can do so many different things oh he's incredible did you watch dead to me no i don't even know what it is oh it's um it's on netflix and it's linda cardellini and um i can't remember the other actress's name but james marston is in it and plays like a villain which is really fun to watch yeah yeah i mean i think the number one thing i think of when i think of him these days is westworld um which is such an incredible show. I know. So Christina, Al- Christina Applegate is the other lead in oh, Dead to Me. She's okay. like the lead. Um, but yeah, that would be, that would be, I mean, he might be too old now. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. He's, he's perfect though. That's how beautiful I, I imagine Roger to yeah. be, you know? I know. He has uh, to be like strikingly handsome, which James yeah. Marsden is. Maybe James Marsden could play an older version of Jonathan. Yeah. Um, But, okay. Anyway. 
If you have a casting that you uh, want to discuss with us, email us, thedancingdovepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else do we think would be difficult to adapt? Um, I think that the part when she, like, is learning how to be a girl would be really fun to watch on TV. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, and seeing sort of, I, I think everyone loves those transformation yes. moments in movies, you know? I know. Um, they're a little cheesy, but they're really fun. <laughs> so fun. Yeah. Um, you know what we didn't talk about last time that I think is going to be a huge problem is how do you adapt Faithful? I mean, I guess you go the Sabrina the Teenage Witch way. <laughs> but I, I think... But I don't want his mouth No, I, I don't think that it can. Wait, I meant to say this. Someone else was talking to Faithful. I think it was either George or Miles. George. Yeah, that's it, so when, fun. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when... Sh- he gives yeah, her the drink, yeah. and then George says to Faithful, "Like you knew, I put a little extra in there. Why didn't you tell her?" Yeah, and Faithful's like, "And then make sure you cover her up." I know, she gets cold but that, that was that was funny because Jonathan's always like, "Are you talking to Faithful?" It's my impression. Yeah, of it is Jonathan. interesting to see who Faithful chooses yeah. to. Interesting. With. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Faithful's making a comment there about who she <laughs> should be with. <laughs> um. But yeah, I will stay silent <coughs> on that. Um, okay, well, last segment is winner of the episode. So who do we think wins this episode? All right, well, I have I have an idea, and I don't know if okay. it's... Okay. But I, I feel like Tom should win. Because... Oh, no, absolutely <laughs> Why not. not. He comes, <laughs> he helps protect her. He's always the one who's like, Duke Roger's a problem. <gasps> You reminded me I forgot something. Okay, but, but then he's the one. He he gives her the shield with the lioness on it. He's there when she is outed and kind of helps her along. And he has the paperwork. And then he's going to stay at court and help protect everyone while she's gone. And he became a master, like the youngest master. Ugh. I mean, if, right, do you have I, a different will, idea? Alana? I, well, <laughs> Yeah, it's. Yeah. I just feel like it has to be Alana. Like she kills the greatest sorcerer that has ever lived. She becomes a knight. She's yeah. the first female knight in over. No, you're. Years. I mean, it, it does have to be Alana. I guess I was. It I guess I was just Alana. trying to see if there was um, a like because she already won. But I will <laughs> give it to Tom because he's not going to get anything else uh, from me. So fine, we can give this one to Tom. Um, I will say, sorry, I forgot to mention when they go to visit Tom. Do you remember which chapter this is? Um, is it fears? Uh, oh my god, we didn't even talk about the part when she almost dies in the ice. Oh yeah, which is another murder attempt. There's so many yeah, attempts on her it is life fears. in this book. Um, okay, here we go. I found it. Yeah, so um, when they get to the city of the gods, uh, which is where... Um, the Mithrin Cloisters are, it's where Tom has been training to be a sorcerer. Um, we meet um, sort of the chief of the masters, this guy named Sicham, and he is described as an ancient yellow man. Um, and he is, like, when I first 
read this. Like, I think I had just maybe skipped over yeah. it the, like, 1,000 times that I've read this. I was so shocked by it. Yeah. Um, and the first time I read it, I was like, is this a typo? Did she mean a man wearing yellow? Mm. Um, but no, because they're wearing orange robes. And then she says it again um, when Tom uses the word of command on Alana's ember from the goddess. Um, Seachom comes in and it says, the yellow man examined the stone. So the fact that he is described as yellow and his name is Seachom, I think is supposed to indicate to us that the Mithran priests, or maybe just this one priest, um, is somehow of Asian origin. Now, of course, there is no Asia in this universe, um, but this is, you know, I think at some point we discussed whether or not race exists mm-hmm. in the books. And I think it didn't really exist um, that much until we saw depictions of the Bazir, mm-hmm. which even then we said there is no indication that this is a racial difference. It might just be like a geographic cultural difference. Um, but this is a clear indication of race because yellow is not an actual human skin color right um and i actually am taking asian american jurisprudence right now and we're talking about the sort of creation which is this constant feedback loop um of the creation of race Mm -hmm. and how um you know the the concept of race is an absolutely illogical one like there is no actual like biological race. Um, Race is a social concept, which means that we create it socially. It exists because we treat people differently based on this sort of made up thing that is race, but it is entirely illogical. Um, And we've read a number of fascinating cases in Asian American jurisprudence where you see American Supreme Court justices wrestling with this question of, you know, we have all these laws written about what white people can do and what black people can do. What do we do with yellow people? Um, Which is often referred to as like Chinese Mm men um, or Orientals. And uh, yeah, I mean, racism against Asian Americans is a fundamental part of our history. It has been around for a much longer time than I thought. Um, In fact, one of the first things that we talk about in the class is the history story that's often told is that Chinese immigrants came to America for the California gold rush and to work on the railroads um, in the 1800s. But actually, um, Asians, you know, Asian itself is sort of a stupid word, right? Like, it's just such a massive part of the world. Um, But people from the area that we call Asia had come to the States as indentured slaves or indentured servants, but essentially slaves, um, in the 1700s when uh, people in the South, plantation owners, were not able to purchase more African slaves, they um, quote-unquote hired these coolies, is what they were referred to, um, to do the same work that African slaves were doing. And um, there's just a long, long history Mm. of the subjugation of Asian Americans, as well as um, the use of Asian Americans to justify the racial stratification, um, because there was so much like mixing between 
white and black people. And, you know, you see with like Plessy v. Ferguson, the idea of the one drop rule, that kind of legal uh, conception of race is in part contributed to, justified by, and sort of like defined by the existence of Asians as the middle ground. Like, well, these Chinese people are so different from us, like clearly race is a thing because they Mm -hmm. aren't white. Um, So we can justify this like stratification. Um, And so it's sad to see this in Tammy's books. Um, I will say, I don't think... I could be wrong. We'll look as we go along. I don't think this ever comes up again. Um, like right. the calling someone mm-hmm. yellow. Um, and I think what's most troubling about it is that it's not a character in the book saying, oh, right. you yellow man or something like that. It's yeah. the author describing the character as yellow. And that is. Um, I wonder if she concerning. ever talks about it. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I will look into that. Um and maybe bring it back for our next episode. But it's definitely something I didn't want to skip over. Um, back to episode winner. <laughs> so today's episode winner is Tom. I will, I will let that ha- happen. Uh, <laughs> um, I think that's it for today, right? Yeah. Um- that's, I think that that's it for today. A few things. If you want to reach out to us, we do have our email address, which is the dancing dove podcast at gmail.com. Um, and if you like the podcast, if you wanted to rate and review us, that really helps in making sure that we can get seen by as many Tamara Pierce fans as possible. So thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back again next week or soon with the first five chapters of the next book, which is called The Woman Who Rides Like a Man, right? Yes, that is the book. Um, And let me, yeah, chapters one through five of The Woman Who Rides Like a Man. So very excited. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Bye. As always, a really loving thank you to the Silverman Brothers, Arif for our beautiful music, and Nadine for our wonderful cover art. Uh, Also, as always, to Tamara Pierce. And today, to my professor, Professor Karen Shimakawa, who teaches Asian American jurisprudence at NYU.